Sonic State.com. Okay, hello and welcome everybody to Sonic Sonic Talk number 49, uh, recording on the 6th of June, going live on the 7th of June, that's a Thursday, 2007. Um, welcome everybody, we've got uh, five, there are five participants today. Um, first up, let's say hello to G4 Software's Dave Spears. Hello. Hello, how are you Dave? Um, you know those weeks where everything goes brilliantly? Yeah. This is the opposite of that. Oh dear. I'm sorry so I'm to liable to be a bit grumpy. A bit grumpy. <laughs> I think we can cope. I think we can cope. Good. Maybe, uh, if only there was, um, we had three-dimensional Skype, then I could teleport you a bottle of um, beer or something, because it's a very hot day, and that would probably be quite nice, unless you've already got one on the go. No, nope, me never. Not at all. No, I didn't think so. Well, <laughs> um, Dave, I did get your press release about the Mini Monster Universal binary, finally, so I'm glad to see that's finally uh, uh, come out from under the... The buddle, as it were. Oh yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, but well, that's going well. So there's. Oh uh, well, there you thing. go. It's not all bad. Not all bad. No. Uh, also, say hello to Non Eric from Berlin, um, sunny Berlin, I hope. Well, mediocre. Hello. It's been a while since we've seen you. Been a while since seen you. I know you've been um, you've been off. Various Wednesday happenings seems to have conspired to keep you from us. But, Absolutely, uh, bad luck. Lots of bad luck. Oh dear, that's that's very unfortunate. I didn't know you were a swimmer. Oh, yes, I am. You're a swimmer, and you're competing and everything. You've got a podium result, I hear. <laughs> Third place. Yes. Oh, wow, that's not so Whoa. bad. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> who, who are you racing against? Mark Spitz and um, that Thorpe guy. <laughs> <laughs> the no, competition must have been tough, that's all I can say. Uh, and also, we've got, from Minneapolis, PJ Tracy. Good morning, Nick. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, as ever. How is it today? Is uh, I hope we haven't got you up too early, and you're well-rested. Well rested, feeling fantastic. It's about uh, seventy-five degrees and sunny here in Minneapolis, so Ooh. I can't complain. That sounds great. It's probably about the same in Bath, actually. As I speak, my uh, my partner's taking our daughter to the swimming pool, which uh, is an outdoor one that uh, we managed to get membership for uh, over by the hospital. So I'm looking forward to um, hearing how she's getting on when I get back. But I wish I was sort of maybe I should do the podcast from there next week if I can find any underwater podcasting equipment to do do it from that would be kind of fun maybe i should do that for the 50th episode poolside podcast but perhaps not and also of course mark tinley good to have you again how are you hello not too bad uh, mark you were telling me just a minute ago that you've just made a new gear purchase which i think we should all hear about what have you got i have i just bought myself a set of um soundman okm microphones okay. um, which i intended to go and record some classic motorcycles with actually and um but that didn't work out too well. I went to the thing at Nebworth House, and um, there were lots of classic motorcycles there, but they all seemed to be parked, so they weren't doing very much. Right. So but just... I have successfully recorded the church bells on Sunday morning, and um, actually there's an MP3 of that on Wikipedia if you look for it carefully. Okay, and what's it like? Is it, I mean, is it kind of um, uncannily real? It's decidedly eerie, yes. I put them in, in, you know, in my ears and went and stood in the garden. While I was standing in the garden recording the church bells, there were birds um, flying over my head. Right. But actually flying over front to back. So if you go and listen to this recording with headphones on, you can hear this pigeon go over your head. It's kind of, it's really weird. So what are they? They fit? They're like earbuds, but um, they work in the same way as PZM or boundary microphone in that instead of having a flat plate underneath them like a PZM microphone, right. they use the side of your head. So they kind of filter things in much the same way as your ears filter oh, I things. Oh, I see. Wow, they're using, you know, like your skin and ears and stuff. 
So I guess if you make the recording, the recording would sound more realistic to you than another person. But I, I, I suppose the more the more generic shape your head is, the more <laughs> likely it's going to sound real to other people. Are they expensive? One hundred and forty quid or something, which is what? No, that's not bad at all. And uh, they're on eBay, actually. They sell them direct on eBay. So you, if you do a search for Soundman OKM on there, you'll find them. Okay, cool. And Can I do binaural recording with that setup? Yeah, exactly. That's, That's exactly, exactly what they're for, yeah. What they're for, yeah. Oh, okay. But I, I want to actually start doing binaural samples a bit because I thought, figured if I got somebody to stand behind me with a nice snare drum and hit it, it would, and then I'd place that in the mix without filtering it all. EQing or anything and had it in a sampler and triggered it in the right place, it would sound like it was behind your head, but I haven't had a chance to get around to that. Because there's those, um, what is it, the Neumann head that um, lots of people, I know they use it a lot out of real world for a lot of the WOMAD recordings and um, field recordings, and that's basically a head, dummy head, isn't it? With a, I don't know, it's either got two or three microphones in it, I'm not sure. I believe oh, that's okay. the same type of thing, Nick. But it comes that's... with a free head. <laughs> you have yep, exactly. A standard head shape. I think on Sandman's website they recommend that you use a pumpkin. A pumpkin? Yeah, which <laughs> would be great hot Halloween, wouldn't it? The shape of a pumpkin isn't dissimilar to a very large human head, I guess, but also but the um, skin on a pumpkin would probably work in much the same way and you know, filter things in the way that a person's head would. Right. I um, think what? if you used a mannequin, it would be too reflective. So I think it needs to, you know, sound like your ears would expect it to sound. Oh, I see. So it has to have skin like flesh like quality, otherwise, it'll be wrong. I think so, yeah. Intuition has a brand new method of operation one without a keyboard, not even a mouse. One that reacts to brushes and fingers and everyday objects. Microsoft Surface lives where people gather, where leisure is the rule rather than the exception. So, yes, Microsoft Surface, um, that kind of got us all a bit by surprise. I, did, I certainly wasn't expecting that one. I think, um, Dave, you, you passed that one on. Essentially what it is, I mean, we've talked about multi-touch technology, you know, not endlessly, but uh, periodically uh, over the podcast, because there was the Jeff Han thing, which looked absolutely fantastic. And obviously there's the, the Lima as well, which uh, I'm a big fan of in, in some respects. But this looks like it's just taken, raised the stakes uh, considerably, uh, it being essentially a, a kind of large light table that uh, allows multi-touch. And they seem to have been p- pitching it at the kind of commercial stroke kind of new digital home i don't think it's available just yet um but there's some some thoughts are that it's going to be between five and ten thousand dollars did anyone get a chance to watch any of those demos uh, i mean so. what makes it really interesting is that um i saw this uh i think it was on create digital music they had this rumor out and they showed some patents that apple was obviously uh, had had pending patents on um touch control for music applications yeah so I think uh, maybe pretty soon we're going to see some stuff from Apple going in exactly that direction. And I heard rumors, very, very, very big rumors, that Apple 10, uh, Logic 10, 9, or whatever it's going to be called, is going to be shown in the middle of June at the developer conference. Ah, what right. What happened to 8? We skipped it. Skipped it. Oh, I don't know. It's, okay. an unlu- it's one of Steve's unlucky numbers. I don't know. <laughs> so... 
I, I mean, I just was uh, flat. Some of the, I mean, some of the applications for this just look really smart, and I like the way that um, there is some video where you know you can put your phone on it, and it will just sense that it's there, realize it's like a Bluetooth device, and then you can kind of drag and beam things. It's kind of quite visually. It was just, it looked actually, you know, even though it's incredibly corporate and, and what have you, it did look very intuitive for what they were actually using it for. Nick, the rumor in the in the tech community seems to be that this technology is going to ship to large resort chains, casinos, restaurants, things things of that nature towards the end of the uh, third quarter. Okay. This year, and that's where you'll see it first surface. No I can believe that, like casinos and you know what have you. Yeah, I can totally believe it because then there's going to be lots of people with lots of money who can see that kind of stuff and are going to be kind of quite excited about it. Yeah, and I think it'll help in resorts. They show a gentleman in one of those videos sitting in the lobby of a hotel and planning a day trip. Yeah. And then downloading the information into his phone and using it as a GPS device. Yeah, I mean, those, those sort of, I mean, they make an awful lot of sense. Although, can you imagine the cues for those things? I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, there's a guy. Nobody else in the place was interested in using it, but, I mean, you're not going to be able to afford too many of those things. There's going to be a huge queue. But, of course, I mean, this this Microsoft thing does look... I mean, I guess it's only going to run Vista. I mean, why would it run anything else, presumably? Um, but the one thing that I did when I was looking at this, there was also this other um, sort of open open source multi-touch project, which looked really interesting, which is um, essentially the... Uh, it's called Multi-Touch, and it's made by... Um, is the MTC, the multi-touch controller, I think, made by the C-Base crew, who seem to be uh, a kind of collective of Berlin-based guys. Um, it uses, and this one runs on a Pentium 3 gigahertz with one gigabyte of RAM and a GeForce 520 graphics card. It allows multiple p- touch points and it runs on its own software. And it looks, that looks kind of interesting, although because it's open source, I mean, you know, you have to ba- build it yourself and deal with the, the software. But it things seem to be conspiring to move into that direction so the demo looked a bit abstract but i couldn't understand what he was doing with the blocks or what they were meant to represent i kept looking at them and sort of he kept dragging this same block up to the top which maybe that was a drum loop or something i like the idea of dragging dragging the sounds into the arena but if they're just somebody else's loops then you know it's more like being a dj isn't it that really, the, the the point of this was really that you know we've got two, one a, a fairly major announcement from big corporation that are basically going to say you know we're entering this market with a bang, and it certainly looks like they really are pushing, yeah, pushing the boat out. I, I, I mean, I've got you know various hands and fingers. I want to be able to put my hands on a screen and turn knobs and move faders at the same time. I mean, that would be brilliant. Or if you could hit you know, groups of mute buttons or whatever with your fingertips and just switch things in and out. Several you know what I, think, <clears throat> what I think would even be really a lot of fun is if, if you watch um, the more recent videos on Jeff Hand's technology, yeah. which you guys have talked about in the past, um, he's already got uh, a pretty <clears throat> vibrant software developed to be, and you can create, he gives you an SDK or a software developer's SDKs to be able to interface with their own data sources. One thing that I love about his uh, software approach is that his background is as a graphics guy. So his graphics manipulation is uh, seems to be very, very speedy and very seamless. One thing you can do is you can take a data set, for instance, like an arrange page on a, on a sequencer, and you can put a sort of a translucent or transparent, semi-transparent overlay and zoom in. So imagine zooming in on a section of sample data and being able to tweak that or edit that. 
Another thing you can do is manipulate three-dimensional objects. So you could create something like um, user-definable shapes or track elements. Inside those shapes, you could have, um, uh, I suppose, EQ data or any data, and then you could move seamlessly three-dimensionally through that environment and, and tweak those objects. And mm. I, I'd love to see a major develop, developer like Digidesign or uh, Steinberg or any of the any of the big guys jump on top SDK that goes I think the problem that. is is really I mean you know it is quite niche for that sort of field but I mean presumably if this thing because Microsoft have entered have basically entered the kind of this this uh, market that you know we're going to start to see people taking this technology seriously and we'll start to see more mainstream applications for it and we should get some kind of spin-offs and I'm really hoping that it takes off big for at Microsoft I mean presumably they haven't been able to they're not going to be able to patent the concept of multi-touch is just their particular brand of how they do it. Um, because from what I understand, the, the, the Jeff hands one is, uh, it re- it requires quite a considerable amount of CPU and, uh, to, you know, to, to achieve that. Whereas the open source, the multi-touch DE guys, uh, is, you know, it was running on a three gigahertz Pentium three. Yeah, but there's an extreme difference in the usability of those two environments. I mean, you can see that just by looking at it. Sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, one one looks like cave drawings compared to the other. Yeah. But are, are we really doing ourselves any good by doing uh, manipulating audio and music more and more in a visual manner? Because I, sometimes I have uh, the feeling that I'm being misled by the graphic representation of my arrange window in twiddling and doing stuff that maybe I wouldn't have done if I would have just listened. I totally agree with you. Mm. Totally, totally agree with you. Having played with these binaural microphones this week, a lot of the the directional information that we get about things are from visual cues. And and sometimes things don't have a directional property to the sound. So sometimes you'll hear something, but you don't really know where it is, but some visual clue or some visual cue will give you some in other information about where that sound is, and then you'll know. And I think that you have the same problem with user interfaces. You don't really know exactly where the kick drum is, if it's exactly on the beat or not. And you start looking at something in Pro Tools, lining up on the grid maybe, and going like, oh, no, it's not quite on the grid, and you move it because you see the first right. chunk of sample and maybe you don't realize there's maybe three milliseconds of noise at the beginning of that kick, and maybe it was in the right place, and, and you heard it right, and now you've moved it to a visual cue. It's maybe not so good as it was, or you've messed yeah, up. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very valid point. I, I know, Dave, what, what do you think? Can you see a, a great use for it for our world? It's funny, actually. I think it's quite exciting, but I also uh, totally agree with Hans and Mark. In, I mean, there's a, there's a great story that Chris tells here in that um, he was working with Yes once and they were down in the south of France and John Anderson sent him off to record the sound of about, you know, six waterfalls. And Chris had a great day, went up the mountain, you know, recorded these things on the dat. And by the time, when they actually got it back without the visual cue, it just sounded like a thousand toilets flushing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think of what... Uh, it's the greatest danger for me doing visual editing is when I do arrangements because then I always feel like I have to tidy things up. It doesn't look right. You know, something needs to go there because yeah, it's yeah. maybe an empty space. Or So I always felt that I was, um, you know, sometimes being misled or encouraged to fiddle around with the arrangement 
it's I suppose and also you get to the point where actually you spend an awful lot of time coloring the various song parts and patterns and song sections. Yes. You don't need to do that because it's the, it's no, nobody's going to see that when you listen to the final thing. In in the mid 90s I was very bored sitting in a hotel room in London at night because I lived in Scotland and worked in London. Um, I used to take bitmap pictures and then I used to go through the pixels and work out which ones were which colors and then I'd use logic audio to create uh, the bitmap in the arrange page. <laughs> I'm wow. serious. Those are long nights there, right there, aren't they? It did take a very long time. I did some... Should, what do they sound like? Um, yeah, what do they well, sound like? It wasn't really so much about sound. It was just cutting the regions into the right length to make pixels from them and then getting all the colours right. God, and it was just from a sort of... It was from a point of view of, I can do this now, so I'm going to fiddle around doing it more than anything else. (laughs) But I think perhaps you're all right about the fact that it could just detract from the creative process. You'd end up so involved in the beauty and the fiddling about that you kind of forget that you had to finish your track by five o'clock or whatever it was. I think think you're right about that, Nick, but also I think that it it might uh, behoove us to move into different graphical representations, you know, instead of, I mean, getting away eventually from the traditional arranged screen, at least, uh, not, maybe not in its entirety, but occasionally to be able to think differently about music. I mean, that's what I appreciate about going back to hardware sequencers and, and using hardware in general is that you think, you think very differently about um, about music, but there's still a graphical representation there. When you're tweaking sliders and turning knobs, there's still a graphical representation. Um, you just you might use your ears differently, or you might think differently about your data set than mm. you do when you when you stare at at your arrange page inside of Logic or Cubase or what have you. Um, I think. I think that we can't get away from manipulating audio visually. We're we're there. We moved there you yeah. know, 20 years ago, and it's not going away anytime soon. So if we can make it faster, better, cheaper, different, then I then I say bring it on. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good uh, a good way of looking at it, and um, we'll just have to see how they kind of translate into into this world. But uh, it is a very exciting development, I think, and hopefully, you know, this might accelerate the sort of advance of this kind of technology into our everyday lives. Because I mean, you know, the QWERTY mouse kind of workplace is 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 something that we're all very very familiar with, and um, you know, we kind of. We take that for granted, I suppose, and it might be nice to kind of think outside the box there. The new NN6 music production synthesizer from Codename Mimo. The 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation, real time audio control, USB connectivity, and computer integration. Bundled with Cubase LE audio and MIDI sequencing software. Create, produce, perform with the affordable and versatile NN6 music production. That was an ad there from Yamaha for the Minimo MM6 synthesizer. Uh, it's got a whole load of power under the hood based on the Motif engine. If you want to check out some exa- some sound examples, head on over to www.mm6music.co.uk. It helps make us look good and it spreads the word. LED Strat, which I thought was quite interesting. I think it was uh, a program that was kind of launched by Fender, and they asked a lot of uh, musicians, uh, designers, etc., to design their own Stratocaster. 
Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran was asked to design one, and he designed one which was kind of had a load of pixels under the scratch board and looked really quite remarkable. So it, it was able to kind of display patterns, images, you know, um, simple simple images, maybe text or whatever. And uh, it recently went for £3,200, so it raised a reasonable amount for charity. I'm afraid I couldn't find out which charity it was. It, it went for. But, uh, Mark, having uh, I know you have a, the occasional... Um, dalliance with uh, mr rhodes did uh, were you aware of this have you seen it in the flesh i haven't seen it in the flesh and i wasn't aware of it no but i did ask him about it and um he was saying that he thought it didn't go for enough money and it did seem because, quite light because it's you know it's a one-off isn't it yeah, custom stratocaster I mean, he said it probably cost that much to make it so i mean he said it was a shame that it went for as little as it did and uh, you know the whole thing was for a good cause and if he'd known that it wasn't going to go as high as he expected that he would have bid on it and bought it himself yeah, um, and apparently a studio from the Cotswolds has bought it. Oh, okay. But, I mean, my my personal opinion on this, and and I, I mean, I think that this is something that people should do: is that when things are auctioned for charity, that the charity should make it a condition of purchase that the, that if the owner sells it in the future, um, that subsequent profits should go to the same charity because it's it's all very well buying one of this guy's you know whoever's bought this has bought it for three thousand two hundred pounds and it is unique and the only one and maybe the charity didn't um advertise the auction as well as they might have done um so if that owner the the current owner as a private individual sells it in the future for fifty thousand pounds or dollars yeah or whatever, i see what makes, you're saying um, sort of 47,000 quid profit. It's a bit unfair that that should go to a private individual when the whole idea of the thing is that it should go to a charity. Well, when when doing a little research on this, I couldn't find much about that that particular charity event, but I noticed that in uh, response to the tsunami event in the South Pacific back in 2005, yeah, or two, late 2004, in 2005 there was an auction of a guitar that was signed by several rock and roll luminaries and apparently this um event was uh sponsored by brian adams uh, canadian pop star and it sold to the royal family of guitar for two hundred and seventy thousand dollars and then was resold at auction for 1.2 million dollars several months later wow i bet it didn't go to the charity uh, apparently it did. Apparently, oh, good apparently for them. all of the profit went to that charity. Yeah. Oh, good for them. I did ask Nick to um, join in, but he's doing something else this afternoon, meetings or something. Love to. If I get some advance warning, I can come up with something kind of suitably intelligent <laughs> to, to <laughs> ask him. Or maybe not. <laughs> Well, uh, that rather unimpressive roomy sound was uh, was something from the Roland System 100. That uh, uh, there was a chap called Tardis 54 who um, who's been putting up snippets of, uh, of of his System 100 on YouTube, and uh, I remember seeing one when I was uh, a lad. Um, they had one in my local music store. And I just remember desiring it greatly, and never kind of having it on my hands on it. And I just wondered if anyone had ever, ever held one or touched one in the flesh, and what they were really like. I suppose I owned one. Dave, Dave owned one. Hey. <coughs> yeah, it was uh, one of the first synths. In fact, it's a funny story. Well, only for anal synth spotters, but um, <laughs> it was 
it was the old Roland distributor in the UK before Roland UK was kind of formed. Yeah. Um, I think they were called Jorgensen's or whatever, but when they were going down, they basically just sold everything off, and I picked um, one up for 199 quid in about 1980. Wow, because they were nearly two grand, you? They were yeah. £1,700, in fact, according to uh, I, Peter Forrest's A to Z of synths. Yeah, this was just the sort of bog standard, you know, the keyboard and the and the initial synth, and then I think the other one was about two ninety nine, which eventually I managed to get hold of. But yeah, no, it's a good sounding thing. In fact, funny enough, it's on that Nick Rhodes video, isn't it? It's behind him. Is that the same Probably, one? Yeah, Nick's got two or three uh, of the back things, and it was one of his first keyboards. And he's got the uh, there's a separate keyboard bit that plugs into it. And this guy that's used the guy on this um, YouTube video is actually using the wrong sequencer. That's a yeah, it's a Mobius that sequencer. Ah, cool. Oh um, dear. But but Nick has the the, the um, sequencer with the knobs on, and you have to tune each note individually, like yeah. with uh, control vote. They're amazing, aren't they? And, and actually, the other person I know who's got one of these is my brother Adam, who's bought a whole System One Hundred thing. And most of the music that he makes now is just System 100 loops layered on top of each other. So. Oh, really? Um, oh, very yeah. cool. Well, uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the um, System 100 entry in the uh, Peter Forrest A to Z of Analog Synths, and uh, there's a great little um, anecdote from the Human League, apparently, because the Human League kind of originally, uh, they, it was one of their first synths. I mean, it was partly one of the reasons they formed, because they had a, yeah, but this technology was available to them. But apparently, because um, they used to do a lot of their own drums, I don't know if there was an album called Reproduction, which uh, I think is a classic, actually, and uh, a lot of that was uh, was System 100, by, by all accounts. And he says that... Uh, um, Ian Marsh got it on credit along with two analog sequences. We did our drums by using these white noise fi- uh, by using white noise filtered with a lot of resonance. He used the second bank of pots on the analog sequencer to time the first bank. We did all our drums on it like that, and it was rotten. As soon as the oscillators got low enough for the bass drum, they began fluctuating all over the place. You'd get maybe two really good beats and five rotten ones. <laughs> and I must admit, listening to the album, if you do pay too close attention to the drums, you can kind of certainly concur with what he's saying there because there there are. There is a definite analog feel to the electronic drums on that album. Hans, I mean, you're you know being being a, a man of sort of techno pedigree. Did you is that something you ever came across? Uh, the Roland one hundred. No, unfortunately, not. The closest I ever got to anything modular is um, the MS twenty and the SQ ten. Yeah. Okay. Which you also use. You can also use the MS twenty and fifty very well for really thick and heavy bass drums and snares and claps. It's really really good. PJ, how about you? Have you kind of uh, got any fond memories of this, or is this a bit before your time? It's it's a little before my time, but I did run into one once at a private, uh, like kind of a private half rave. I went to a studio party once, and there was one sitting uh, sitting in a corner. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the owner to uh, ask him to plug it in. But uh, what I found interesting in listening to the recordings of it is that uh, I know it has the the same filter chip as the TB three hundred three in it. But it doesn't sound like a 303 at all. Uh, what's it good for? Oh, blimey, it was a long time ago. I, I remember bringing it home and my dad, who's you know, always unimpressed with any of this stuff, saying, well, come on then, you know, sh- let me hear what it sounds like. Make and it sound like a flute, th- Sonny. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, I remember going through the sort of manual and it's like, oh, well, this is a tuba, which is singularly <laughs> unimpressive. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think it's good for making weird, weird noises. And if you've got several of the component things and lots and lots of those three and a half, three, three and a half millimeter jack leads, you just start plugging things into things that they're not to plug, 
and they're meant to be plugged into and getting oscillators to control other oscillators and stuff and it just goes off and does its own thing and you can get this massive background weird spooky noise happening and then you record lots of it cut it all up edit it and use it for different things the thing about all these things i mean modular synths are fantastic and i because i hans you were saying about the ms20 and ms50 i used to have that combination but the problem was for me is I do work on a mix or something, and I r- always run everything live in MIDI, and then I'd record it at the end. But you know, if I had another deadline coming, the last thing I do is then go to this machine and then break down one of the other patches and try and create a new one. So it, you 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 kind of get locked into this kind of oh, it sounds so good at the moment, I don't want to touch it kind of scenario, and that's that's always a bit of a problem with that stuff. Yeah, you can't touch it because it won't be the same. Yeah, never, never again. Only only once in a lifetime it will sound the same. Yeah, you buy it, set up a sound, and then that's it. You leave it for life. Yeah. Yeah. We used to record our sequences to a normal tape deck and uh, play the sequences live from the tape deck. And from the tape deck, we would take a, a lead and put it back into the um, input. It has a, this trigger and control voltage input at, yeah. the, at, at the front, the MS-20. So you could actually re-trigger itself uh, from yeah, the tape. A- Good, so good thinking. You have other stuff running in, 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 in time and in sync with the pre recorded uh, MS20. Oh, cool. Ah. We'll move quickly onto some digital world stuff. I mean, we've got a few sections. Um, we've got EMI and YouTube cut a deal, um, which look kind of, um, on the face of it, it, sounds like a great headline, doesn't it? It's kind of like, oh, brilliant, we're going to see loads of EMI content on YouTube and we won't have to pay for it. But actually, that's not what it is. <laughs> what it is is EMI have said, yeah, you can use some of our stuff, and part of it's going to be used as uh, to insert content into user-generated content. So it's going to be like, uh, you know, if I decide to put a video up of, I don't know, a review of, say, the Mackie 1202 VLZ, which I'm using at the moment and sounds very nice, um, they might insert... I don't know, what would they do? Elton John or something? You know, a, a plug for Elton John's new album in the middle of it. I'm not quite sure. They were they were really non-specific. They say, we're excited to add EMI's music, music stellar roster of artists to content to our site and make it available to our community. Fair enough. But EMI and YouTube have agreed to work together to develop ways in which EMI-owned recorders can be incorporated into user-generated content by YouTube users. And that's really all it says. And it just sounds like a kind of... Uh, sounds great, but then when you look at it, it sounds like actually it might not be so great. <laughs> Writers had an article on this, Nick, and they claim that uh, EMI has in the contract with YouTube that any given artist on the EMI roster can opt out of having their content used on the site. For okay. instance, they, they cited the Beatles. The Beatles don't want their content up there. Right. So, um, I, and... Everywhere that I found any any mention of this deal, they kept saying that EMI and YouTube were going to use YouTube's content management tools to make sure that EMI was paid, but I couldn't find any reference to specifically what those content management tools are or what they do. Um, but yes, it's all a bit sort of vague and waffly, isn't it, without any kind of meat and subject. I suppose we'll just see it happen and then kind of go, what was it like? But there's very little flesh on the substance of this story. Uh, no, yeah, no, well, it kind of went over my head, really. I just thought, oh, this smacks of, you know, hey, it's a strategic alliance, what's our share price change? I was quite interested in the spin-off thing, the YouTube site blocked in Morocco. I didn't see that one. It's just loads of people saying uh, they've been unable to access it in Morocco and huh. blaming everybody for blocking it. Ah, uh, right. This could just be incompetence, of course, as these things are often <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and while we're in the digital world, um, iTunes to up bitrate. 
Well, hey, we're going to get a massive two five six kbps in the iTunes Plus. Uh, I've I've just been to iTunes and it says iTunes Plus is our new DRM free, highest quality audio format. The sound of iTunes Plus is virtually indistinguishable from the original recordings, and we're introducing it with great music from EMI artists such as Coldplay, oh. the Rolling Stones, Nora Jones, John Coltrane, <laughs> Maria Callas, and many many more. And what I've heard is that they put watermarks into their into the songs with all your account information. Yeah, well, that was the next thing. I mean, that's horrific, isn't it? So basically, you can download this stuff DRM-free, um, but what it does is sort of stamp it with your account details and email address. So if you distribute it um, any further and it gets out and, you know, it starts to propagate, um, it, Apple can come after you and say, hey, we know who you are. We know where this song came from. You're the one who originally purchased it. Prove to us that you didn't just distribute it. Naughty, so, naughty. Mm, well, on the, on the version tracker, somebody will probably have a piece of shareware in two weeks' time that takes that off, won't they? Yeah, but we are getting sick and tired of having to fiddle about with goods that we've bought and that we're supposed to be able to use it without having to run three or four hack tools over yeah, of the course. content every time to de-dongle it from all the rubbish that comes with it. Yeah, but the only reason you'd want to do that is if you were going to give it to someone else, right? So... You know, so if you did give it to a mate or something like that and then they put it up on the web, you would be culpable for it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing is I find that's quite interesting is, you know, if they thought 128kbps was fine all along and that we could live with that, then, you know, by, by sort of saying, oh, no, you can have DRM-free and, and also better quality, they're kind of admi- admitting now that all this time we've been paying for really substandardly encoded music, which uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of class action if, uh, on that. Um, are they going to provide us with 256 kbps AAC files or MP3 files? What's the for- what's the format that they're selling now? I would imagine it's going to be AAC. I would think. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yep. I would think so. I mean, it's their own thing, isn't it? I mean, are we are we paying any more for these? Does anyone know if it's actually going to cost any yep. more? Yeah. Yeah. One uh, euro twenty nine instead of ninety nine cent. In, in Germany. I suppose they've closed the door on people going, hey, hold on a minute, I've bought 200 albums off iTunes, can I have them in high quality now, please? But what happens if you've already bought the album and you think, well, I like that, I'd quite like to have it in full quality. Yeah, you can upgrade, actually. You can upgrade. Oh, well, that's yeah, there's, a, there's an automatic function that goes through all of your EMI purchases and you can upgrade them to the high-resolution version. Free or... Oh, I'm not sure. They just charge your account to whatever. They help themselves to your direct debit. (laughs) (laughs) And why not? Just one last one. Also, by the way, the Zune is now the second most popular personal HD um, music player in the world ever. Uh, Yeah, but it hasn't reached a million. (laughs) Yeah, not very close second, mind. Yeah. Okay, um, I also got some PR recently. Uh, Rain Recording uh, and other purpose-built PCs. Well, uh, Rain Recording have released a new Nimbus Pro, which is a kind of super-duper purpose-built for music um, PC. And I was just thinking, you know, there seems to be kind of quite a lot of um, of these bespoke systems out there. They've got Rain. You've got Philip Reese, funnily enough, who are, who are also doing it. Sweetwater do them. Digital Village in the UK. PC Audio Labs. Obviously, we've got been taking ads for them recently. Uh, Carillon. And, you know, there's kind of a lot of stuff out there. And I just wondered if anyone had any experience i mean is it worth presumably there is a bit of a premium to this and is it worth paying the extra money to have it purpose built uh, you know purpose configured music for music pj perhaps you'd like to go first well uh, personally i 
I'm a do-it-yourself kind of guy, so I built my last system, um, which is an Athlon 64, and, and so it's a bit dated. And since then, I've, I've uh, upgraded with a Core 2 Duo laptop, which is screaming compared to the Athlon 64. However, I did uh, look at the story that you sent us that uh, precipitated this discussion, and, and Rain System, the Element 5 on their website, can be built by a, uh, by a DIY. DIY minus their custom case for just under 2000 US and it's selling on their site for 2900 as the base configuration. Isn't the, isn't the custom case really the most important part of that though? Because well, think- not in not in that particular model, Mark. That one's uh that one's actually a, a video machine. Uh and the reason why I did that one is because it was most closely spec'd out to the to the audio one that Nick has on the Sonic State site. But uh you can get a a pretty decent silent case for three or four hundred dollars, uh, but I, I, they claim that this is new technology that they've been doing all kinds of fancy experimenting and testing and have come up with something quite new. So it'll be interesting to see. And also, but isn't the advantage of this is it comes pre-configured as well? I mean, because you say I want this software on it, and they get it set up running. You know, as with all these people, I guess you know. So you can kind of go. They send it to you. You know, it's going to work when you switch it on. You know, you just got to sort your login and stuff out. And, you know, that is worth paying for. I mean, it always seems to be, you know, that's overlooked because you can spend an awful lot of your life kind of installing software, messing around with kind of tweaking the settings and getting them right. And there's presumably, and also you can phone somebody up and say, it's not working anymore. And they can say, okay, you know. I used to be that man. I used to work for the M Corporation configuring computers for people. And okay. That's kind of why I'm back on the Mac, actually, to be honest. <laughs> right. and, but I think it's been more an issue in the past than these days because we all remember in the past that you needed to have the right kind of uh, board for the PC and the right components and the right chips built in there. And I think it's got a lot more, uh, it got a lot easier to, uh, to actually um, get a PC up and running. Than yeah, a definitely. Like, like two, yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's easy. But it was a, and all that were a nightmare. Yeah, it used to be a yeah. used to be a black art, you know. So do you think that's <laughs> down to the cloud? You know, you have to be, you know, have to be Microsoft signed, you know, to, if you're going to put your stuff on there, you know. So these these kind of plug and play things that make it much easier. I don't know that plug and play makes it easier. I think the fact that computers have got fast enough to share PCI slots and buses and all that kind of stuff makes it easier. I don't think anything's likely to conflict so much as it used to. Right. And in I other think, words, uh, we, were, we were stretching everything to the absolute extreme before, and now there's so much overhead on a machine that you, you pretty much you can get away with putting all sorts of stuff in the computer and, and have it all running all at once, including virus-catching software and all sorts, and it doesn't really make anything stumble or fall over. But why is there such a proliferation of them, then, if it's, if it's so easy? I mean, is it down to the casing, you know, so the fact that you can rack-mount them and chuck them around, you know, is that it? No, Nick, I think it's what you said earlier, that people are paying for the premium of having a purpose-built machine that all they need to do is switch on the on switch, and there it goes. And especially, I think, for, you know, maybe, maybe it's a niche market, but the composer set, the, right. the guys that are going to buy six or seven of these things to run large-format orchestral libraries. And yeah. They don't want to have to configure seven or eight PCs when they buy a new farm, you know, which is essentially a render farm for yeah. audio. They, they don't want to have to, to go through and configure all of that. So now they have a, an outlet. And, uh, they, you know, there's quite a few of those guys out there. I mean, I think all of us, our primary interest is music technology. 
and music. And for somebody whose primary interest is music and they don't understand computers at all, those are, those are the people that are going by this because they do want to be able to just switch it on and use it. Yeah, and presumably, I mean, again, if you've got a rack mount system and you're going to take it on the road or whatever, that's that's you know something you're going to be paying a premium for. So how about a how about a loud, the louded engineer set that have you know stayed in the analog domain for a long time and have sort of crept into to mixing inside the box or you know acquiesced over the past ten years to using computers for editing? I think a lot of those guys don't get hands on with their computers as much as some of us do. Sure. I mean, I think personally it's worth paying a premium and just have someone install stuff on it because, I mean, whenever I get called up to install the latest kind of multi-gigabyte library on somebody's machine, you know, you sit there for bloody hours. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very yeah. tedious uh, and, and not very interesting um, way of, you know, doing things. I don't know. Dave, um, you must have, you know, because in your, in your role of support, I mean, do, do, do these systems generally prove to be more friendly to your products or doesn't it really matter? Uh, it's funny, I, um, I've had the experience of all of the above. I mean, I've set up systems for countless other people and hated it so much that actually when it comes to my own stuff, it's like I want to buy that because I know that it works straight out of the box. I can't be asked, and especially in the old days with motherboard nonsense and IRQ conflicts and also and plug and pray, what was that? <laughs> so, I mean, I would, for me personally, I'd pay the premium knowing that, you know, it came pre-configured. I could take it out of the box and set it up. I mean, that's kind of why I think we're probably Mac-based. But, I mean, certainly for testing, you know, if we're in testing mode, it's like that's all we're doing. So I don't want to have to deal with configuring a system and setting everything up and then, like you say, the hours that it takes to do to do that. And I'm reasonably experienced at it. So, yeah. And I noticed that this is set up by um, the CTO's Robin Vincent, who I know was behind the Carillon stuff. And um, I've got a lot of respect for Robin. I think he knows his stuff. Well, Carillon's still going, isn't it? I mean, I went to the website and had a look. They, they're Carillon, top of the range, ACT1, which is, or TI, I can't see the difference, is, you know, is up there. And that's a big, you know, their rack mount format. So they're still going. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the Carilla stuff was, you know, one of the only PCs that kind of t- was almost good enough to tempt me away from the whole Mac system. Well, what's funny was that they always were one one generation behind, but yes. for a reason, yeah. So if there was a new board, a new PC board out, in the Korean there would still be the old one, but it was always for a reason, because I talked to Robin a lot and... Uh, Stable. Yeah, it's stable. And in, in, in if you just go into the shop and just buy anything, I mean, what I find fascinating is how compatible this whole Windows stuff is. You can even run really, really old Windows music software designed for Windows 95 and is still going strong on on XP or probably even on Vista. Wow. Actually, that's a really good that, point. Compare that, that really to good. the Macs, because if if Apple comes out with a new uh, minor operating change operating system change oh the plugins won't work ah well that is a good point yeah i hadn't i didn't realize that they were so backward compatible oh yeah it's fantastic one of the major reasons why i moved to the pc is i think probably for the same you know reason dave was possibly tempted away or almost tempted away is that at the time that i bought my pc i could buy twice the computing power on the pc platform if i put together my own machine for half of what i could buy the comparable mac for no, I mean the only the only reason that I actually didn't get completely tempted by the PC was do you remember that whole um, Pentium four denormalizing nonsense? Oh yeah. Oh yep. yeah, yeah. No, what was that? It was horrible. You just see, you know, you 
put in uh, certain plugins, and ours were in that camp. You know, if you're using a P4, you just see this sort of CPU rate just go up and up and up and up and up, and you know, we had to do an awful lot of bug fixes. And at that moment in time, that was the only thing. And that's where um, what Hans was saying is correct that you know the Carillon guys were always you know you stick with the P3 and it was fine. I think PJ, um, you know, that may well have been true about twice the computing power for the same price. I don't think that is anymore because if you were now to buy you know a multi-core system, obviously you just can't get them for the same price. No, that that's exactly true, Nick. But I can get the same the same equivalent in computing power on a PC platform for about two thirds the cost of the equivalent Mac right. at current at current US dollars. So gonna, that still that still keeps me on the PC. Yeah, side no, fair things. enough. So I've got a bunch of G4s sitting around here. You know, I mean, they they don't do me, they don't do me any good, and I I love the Mac operating system. It, it's far superior to XP in many ways, but I I still I I still think that. The dollars sway me. Yeah, well, that's understandable. What, what keeps me on the Mac is the fact that I want to be mobile, and I have yet to find a single PC laptop that's actually got good power management on it. I've never seen that, one. That's that's true. I mean, well, I don't have a ton of experience with them, but even on my Dell 9500 series, uh, I had to, the battery was recalled, <laughs> and I had to send for another battery so I can... But if, I, if I'm working on my Mac laptop and I close the lid and I wander off and I go, say I went on holiday for a month, right? If I yep. walked back into the house and opened the lid, I could continue working from where I was and it would still have virtually the same amount of battery left in it. I mean, seriously, the, the power management will, get, will go into a shutdown state for like forever. Mine is boiling in its case when I do that because it runs really, really hot. Well, your right. PC or your Mac? The Mac. Yeah. I don't think the well, power management is quite as good or is, is as good on the new Intels. I don't think it's the same thing. Is um, it not? No. Oh, God, I've got to look forward to it. Then ever. Yeah. Hmm. I have the I have the newer. Well, not the not the very latest Core Two Duo, but the uh, second generation Core Two Duo Dell laptop, and its power management in that regard is pretty good. If I close the lid, it'll go into a shutdown mode, into a, a deep sleep mode. It cools down, and then uh, when I fire it back up, it's right back where I started. How long does it take to fire back up, though? Doesn't it save uh, it all to something? No, no, no. Really? Just a couple, just a couple of seconds. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, yep. I've never seen it ever on a PC. I've never seen it work properly. So. So, well, on the uh, the, the eternal PC-Mac debate, um, let's uh, bring the, the, the programme to a close. And I'd just like to say thanks to everybody for joining me this week. Uh, thanks to Dave Spears from GeForce Software. Thank you. Uh, and uh, non-Eric from digitalmusician.net where you can go and uh, if you want to do some online collaboration yes or go to if you're a German native speaker come and visit musotalk.de and keep them at the top of the German iTunes charts absolutely because we, we currently have a nice video up where we're actually battling with four guys, it's me and three other guys battling for the best recorded guitar sound. Ah, okay. We have people using uh, the J Station, which is something like a pod, and we've got the guitar rig, and we've got um, a, a real amp, and I've got this uh, cabinet, the enclosure cabinet, recording cabinet, with the speaker. Oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll have to go and check that yeah, out. That sounds pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, you can take a look. It's really funny. Okay, and uh, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis, thank you uh, to, to, for joining us uh, once again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. No problem. And finally, Mark Tinley. 
Thanks very much. Hey, so you didn't hurt a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I like that one. Though. Well, yeah, I'm afraid that's all you're going to get time for this week. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for joining us. And uh, we'll remember next week is episode 50. Uh, it's wow. uh, a sort of half, yeah. we're our first half century. Sonic. State. Once again, uh, you've been listening to Sonic Talk number 49 featuring Mark Tinley, Dave Spears, PJ Tracy and non-Eric from Berlin. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Bat, and that's it for this week. Sonic State. Not home.